Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo. Uh, You may notice my voice is a little bit muffled today. Um, I'm working in the store and uh, conducting this interview from our upstairs back room in the Arts Annex, which is um, a bit chaotic, (laughs) but I'm very excited to to be hosting these two great authors. Brian Evanson and David Leo Rice. They're going to be talking about David's new book, A Room in Dodge City, Volume 2. Um, welcome to the podcast, you guys. Thank you for being here. Good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having us. I took you by surprise there. <laughs> we didn't know we were here. <laughs> I know. Where is here, though? You know, we're, we're in some kind yeah. of ether. Everything is all here now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's, it's somewhere. All right. So I want to go ahead and give you guys your formal introduction. Um, and then, uh, David, you're going to read a bit from the book. And then the two of you will launch into a fascinating conversation. All right. So a bit about the book. A Room in Dodge City, Volume 2. So this is the second book in the Do- Room in Dodge City trilogy. It is a buildings roman couched in a tale of folk horror and cosmic paranoia. It's also an elegy for the declining art of cinema. Uh, Set in a bizarre Western town, this book follows a nameless drifter who considers what happens when drifting on is no longer an option. Focusing on the mysterious workings of the Dodge City film industry and the personality cult surrounding Blute Branson, its most legendary director, volume two asks hard questions about the nature of art, fame, competition, and ultimately the ongoing struggle to be born. A mystical inquiry into the sacred and the profane. It expands the universe of the first volume while exploring yet stranger territory and laying the foundation for the trilogy's apocalyptic finale. All right, so David Leo Rice, the author of this trilogy, is an author and animator based in New York City. His books include Angel House, A Room in Dodge City, and A Room in Dodge City, Volume 2, the middle installment in a trilogy. His short story collection, Drifter, is forthcoming in June. And in conversation with David today is Brian Evanson. Brian Evanson is the recipient of three O. Henry Prizes and has been a finalist for the Edgar Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the World Fantasy Award. He actually just won the Shirley Jackson Award and the World Fantasy Award for his new collection, Song for the Unraveling of the World. He is also the winner of the International Horror Guild Award and the American Library Association's Award for Best Horror Novel, and his work has been named in Time Out New York's Top Books 
He happens to be one of my favorite short story writers of all time. I hope you guys check him out. All right, so Brian and David, welcome. Glad you're here. David, you wanna kick us off with a little uh, selection from the book? Sounds great. Yeah, thank you for having us and, and thanks to Brian for being here. And yeah, he's one of, my, one of my favorite short story writers as well. So we're, we have that in common. <laughs> um, cool, okay, so I'll just read, you, you set it up beautifully so there's not, not too much to summarize. I thought I would just read a section from almost the exact center of the book in which this drifter character um, has signed up to be a location scout for Boot Branson, who's this kind of legendary, almost uh, overarching filmmaker presence in Dodge City, uh, who some believe actually created Dodge City as a set for one of his films. So he's almost a sort of God figure, creator figure, um, but there's something very devilish about him as well. Uh, so the drifter has signed up to be a location scout and he's been sent to what he believes is Kazakhstan, although in Dodge City, most places end up turning out to still be within Dodge City, uh, but uh, what, what he calls Kazakhstan, and he's discovered this tower that will end up being very significant to this book and actually the third book as well. You know, the tower is a kind of central image of the trilogy. Um, and being in the exact center of the second book, it sort of appears in the center of the trilogy. Okay, and it's called the M Tower. Inside the M Tower, I take my first gulp from the faucet and think I'll spend the night alone in here on the very top floor, surveying the landscape. If in the morning, I still can't bear the thought of surrendering it to Branson, I'll prepare to take my last stand then. When I've exhausted myself pacing the upper levels in contemplation, I either fall asleep and begin to dream, or fall into a waking trance in which my subconscious takes over all bodily and psychic function. Either way, I feel as though I'm finally seeing the M Tower for what it is. A shadow of its past or future self, I think, just like me. The synthesis rings true. One way or another, for better or worse, the M Tower and I are inseparable. One expresses through architecture, what the other expresses through biology and maybe a soul. My perspective zooms out until I can see us both one inside the other, a homunculus in a shell that in turn houses its own homunculus that in turn, there's something though that we can't see, neither the man in the tower nor the tower in the man. Some grander unity vanishes from sight as the sun goes down over the Kazakh steppe and the chirping of crickets and the dusty winging of bats fills the air. If only I think the sun would rise in the morning over a slightly different world, or if a slightly different sun would rise, some fruition would surely be possible some means of seeing far enough inside myself or all the way beyond myself, such that I would no longer waste my days and years in the half-hearted attempt to work for someone else, but would rather come at last fully into my own and the embryos that have incubated for so long inside me would hatch and the whole world would know what they are. If only I could find the right window, I go on thinking, to gaze out from the M Tower onto the astral landscape beyond, or else perhaps a hidden staircase within, a staircase that leads all the way down to the vault or the altar or the catacombs, whatever it may be, to the foundation itself, then there, hidden, would be what I'm lacking. The knowledge, the insight, the stamina to force into reality, to hammer into the world, that which has lain latent and rotting for far too long in my gut, rendering me fit only to grovel at Branson's feet. I'm pacing the tower maniacally now, up and down its cold stone stairs like some undead caretaker, skidding in the dust and catching myself just before falling out the wide open windows, the night deep and thick as I chase the deliverance that I feel certain is at hand, closer than it's ever been and closer than it will ever be again. I decide that it's either a glimpse of my past, an answer finally to the question of where I came from, 
or else in my future, a long delayed clue as to where, after all this circular travel, I'm going or ought to go. I'd kill for either one, I think, for any certainty at all, any clue even, any means out from under the shadow of Luke Branson and into my own skin, the shadow of a grown man, a real director, someone capable of, I collapse on one of the stone staircases and wake up if I'd been sleeping or fall asleep if I'd been awake. Either way, the feed is cut, the scene is over. My last awful thought just before total darkness envelops me. Might it be possible that all of this, every thought I've just had is nothing but a canned version of yet another Blue Branson origin story, one more among so many thousands of how the great man came to be and why his greatness, as if I didn't know already, so infinitely outstrips my own. And we can leave our, our poor, dr <laughs> poor drifter there for the moment. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Good, good to see you. Oh, no, good it's, to see you. it's a pleasure to see you, too. Um, you know, I can't see you. The audience isn't going to be able to see you, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good, right good thing now, we're I'm, nowhere. Exactly. Yeah, no, I'm kind yeah. of in your, in, in your room with you. That's right. That's um, right. Which yeah. is one of the really strange things about just this period of time is the way in which these kind of private spaces are always adjacent to your own private space. Um, and that, I think, I mean, just, that's one way to think about this book is just the one, one very strange thing about it is the way that everything seems just one step or two steps away from Dodge City. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that there is like the, the whole notion of, of uh, boundaries and, 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 and length and, and, you know, distance have really collapsed in this book so that, that uh, um, you know, everything is kind of just right there. For sure. Yeah. And I think there's an ambivalence about if that's good or bad. You know, that on the one hand, the right. town is, is proud to have cannibalized the world and to be a, an autonomous world. On the other right. hand, there's a, there's a sort of mounting horror that not only could you never escape, but you almost couldn't even conceive of what it would mean to escape. Like even the idea yeah. of a place outside of it is inside right. of it. Yeah, and, and of course, I mean, that seems to tie to just the way in which, which uh, um, culture works now for us. The, the fact that everybody's watching the same TV shows, um, you know, this whole thing of, of, of the way in which we're kind of interacting with the world is, is mediated very similarly, whether you're on the East Coast or the West Coast or elsewhere. A hundred percent. And that we're, we're mediating it by being in it. You know, you see so much of, you know, the news is like people live streaming themselves being in places and also watching themselves doing it and watching themselves commenting on doing it. And, yeah, you know, yeah. the idea that there's any distinction between, you know, what we would normally think of as three levels of like actor, director and audience. Mm -hmm. Those things are now, you know, it's the, the three collapsing into one. Right? The actor is also the director and is the, yeah, audience. the audience. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's kind of a maddening state. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it's, it's strange because that's, and, and one hand it's so kind of insular um, because now you only need one person to do everything. And on the other hand, it's like, it, it's so expansive because, you know, if you, if you, if you do get the, the likes and the hits, then suddenly you're being watched by all sorts of people. Absolutely. Yeah. Who are both there and not there, you know, who are there with you in whatever moment you're broadcasting to them and who are dispersed through this very numinous yeah. and, and kind of haunted network. Yeah. Yeah. You know? well, well, so uh, the book is called A Room in Dodge City, Volume 2, The Blue, Blue Branson Era. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't think you really need to read the first one first, um, is, is my sense of it. Um, that you can start with volume two. It's just, it's a question of which, which facet of the world you want to en enter into first. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think of the first one as being, you know, arrival, right? This right. drifter shows up in Dodge City, although it quickly becomes questionable whether there was anywhere before it, but he shows up with at least the narrative of being a drifter. Right. And it's, you know, and I think it's really about 
outsiderness, you know, sort of how, how in volume one, like how is this narrator in this place that has these rituals and these various kind of sacred histories and heresies and, you know, different authority figures and different cults and different things that have been suppressed or that have been, you know, yeah. apocryphal. And then volume two really is about how do you integrate yourself once you've decided that you're not going to leave, perhaps for the reason we were saying before, that you yeah. realize you, you can't leave because there is no, right. there is no there there in the sense of being able to go someplace else. Yeah. Well, and the drifter, I mean, he ends up being a kind of proxy for the audience mm -hmm. um, because he knows very little just as we do. And it's one way I think of both having the, what I would call the intense weirdness of this book, uh, which, which is one thing I admire about it and the, of the first book as well. Um, but, but then also being able to navigate it, have someone who is maybe a little bit confused and, and is taking it in in the same way you are. Yeah, and, and that he's, you know, I mean, and obviously myself as the author as well as the reader, is like you're stuck in his head. So it's possible that from the perspective of another character, he isn't in good faith. But I think as the reader, we assume that he is and the way right. that he's perceiving things is pretty much not only the way we should, but almost the only way we could, you know, that you, right. couldn't, you couldn't exactly write these stories from another character's point of view. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's true. Um, and so, of course, I mean, we've already kind of mentioned this, but Dodge City is strange, um, surreal, even more surreal than the real Dodge City. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's not, I mean, what is its relationship to actual Dodge City? It's a good question. And I should say I'm in Kansas right now. I'm, I'm sort of working on number three from, from this little house in the center of Kansas. So I feel closer to the spirit of Dodge City than, than I usually do. Uh, I think it, I mean, it has to do with cinema and, and you know, recreation. The idea that the actual Dodge City in Kansas is, is at once a real place. I mean, it is an actual, you know, site of sort of Western lore and, you know, legends were made there and, and all these iconic events occurred there but then has also been mythologized to the point where if you go to the place on the map today called Dodge City, it really is like a theme park, mm -hmm. but it's a theme park of itself. Right. Sim similar to like Salem uh, in, in Massachusetts. With 100%. The, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And well, it relates to cinema in that regard that it's like the reason, it's this kind of echo chamber between, you could say Dodge City and Hollywood. Yeah. in the sense that this, the legend of Dodge City may have occurred there, but then it was reified and turned into a legend in Hollywood, which then bounced back to Dodge City. And it's this kind of feedback loop that right, right. the whole Western's you know, relation to the West Coast oh, yeah, absolutely. is that feedback loop. Yeah, no, it's interesting to me the way, as someone who grew up in the West, just the way that those kinds of myths of the West that you got in, in, in books and films um, really came to kind of inform people's ways of thinking about themselves. Mm -hmm. So, so it ends up being both something that's depicting something that may be there, but it's also generative. It ends up kind of creating the, the reality. Exactly. Well, claiming to depict the history. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, it's true. I mean, in your work and, and mine, I think we're both interested in, you know, how is violence depicted and sort of mm -hmm. what are the, what are the ways in which it's, you know, what layers does it go through to be turned into something that has a significance that the actual event probably can't really have and like why yeah. where in our psychology is that and yeah, how does yeah. literature relate to that and certainly westerns are yeah you know, no western purification by violence basically yeah they're they're a, yeah, a huge part of that i think in terms of just yeah. the way in which we think about violence as as a you know redemptive or not or whatever yeah
exactly. Um, so, so it is this kind of thing where, where Dodge City is, you know, seems like almost a pseudo LA or like it's maybe, I don't know, Simi Valley next to LA or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, um, and so, so in, in a way, I mean, one thing that's interesting to me and one reason that it's exciting for me to do this talk at Skylight is that it is almost like this book is, is, is sending the myth of LA back to itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, I was interested in that, you know, we were talking before about, you know, Zoom or the way we're speaking being this sort of collage of juxtaposing yeah. things that are distant, mm-hmm. but, but then, you know, putting them right next to each other the way like a, you know, a surrealist collage might do. And Dodge City functions in that same way that in volume two, you know, he discovers that the Hollywood Hills literally ring Dodge City. Right. And and that this sort of (laughs) world of, you know, Blute Branson and this kind of power structure of the Dodge City film industry is like looming down on the town from something that's geographically right outside of it. Right. But it's a kind of numinous border. Like he only ever crosses it in this sort of dark limo. And it's like you couldn't. Yeah, someplace you couldn't get on foot. I don't think like, it doesn't quite exist, but, right. yeah. but it does. Well, and I, I think one of the things I like about this book too is is it is when, when I think about psychogeography, um, mm-hmm. this seems to me like psychogeography on steroids. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. yeah. And that's um, something. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. And that's something that I love the, the idea of psychogeography as you know the points at which it becomes indistinguishable whether you're in your mind or in your body, you know, whether yeah. you're in a space or whether the space is in you. Yeah, exactly. And in, and in this case, it's like the objective experience has become so processed through the subjective um, that it's actually changed what's physically there, it seems to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. of course, you know, as you said at the beginning, since we're seeing this all through the perspective of the drifter, we, you know, that may not be what's actually happening, but we don't have anywhere else to stand, really. Yeah, and, and neither does he, because I think, you know, insofar as, as it's a Kunstler Roman or, you know, about his attempt to cease being a drifter and become a, a director and maybe literally become Luke Branson. Um, you know, there's an ambiguity because on the one hand, he has this fantasy that if he could go up a level and cease to be, you know, subject to all these things happening and become the director, mm-hmm. that then it would give clarity, you know, or right. then he, he would reach the real he would like get out of the clouds, you know, literally right. and be able to look down from the hills. Right, right. But I think the opposite possibility is probably more, right. more likely <laughs> that he's going to get deeper in because he's entering the very myth factory that's creating these myths in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's that myth that a lot of artists have that, you know, I can arrive somewhere. As soon as I've done this, I will have arrived mm-hmm. and I'll be happy or whatever. Yeah, I will have made it in a literal sense of like being rescued from, from a shipwreck or something. Right, right, exactly. Um, so you you have a brother Rob who who uh-huh. I know who is yep. a filmmaker, very good filmmaker, I actually think. Um, cool. um, should we see Rob as connected to Blue Branson in any way? <laughs> he is connected to Dodge City, and that we've worked on some film projects related to the books. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, and and certainly my knowledge of LA has grown since he's been there. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've spent more time there, and and you know, seeing you there. Uh, so I, I, yeah, he is, I can almost imagine my consciousness living in LA through his consciousness there and, and going through this, okay, you know, this building's process of, right. of becoming a filmmaker yeah, yeah, in yeah. that environment. Well, and it's interesting too. I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to sure. um, talk too much about your brother because this is about you, but 
Yeah, yeah. Um, because some of his work involves kind of very deliberately leaving LA and going to the outskirts mm -hmm. and filming kind of forgotten places or forgotten pockets. So, so in some ways it's like an inversion in some ways of what you're playing with. Yeah, and, and maybe that, you know, I think that's something that, you know, is certainly in the city of San Jose Angel House, the sense of, uh, you know, like a nesting doll structure of towns yeah. containing cities. Right. You know, so yeah. from his point of view, he could live in LA, but it's like his mind and his, his effort is focused towards this little town, you know, right, right outside, right. but also way outside. The right. And I just fascinating to me that, you know, because we both, I mean, our being brothers grew up in the same town in Massachusetts. Yeah. And I think we both had the sense that, you know, there was something urban about it. You know, mm -hmm. there were a lot of New Yorkers and people from Boston there, but that also, you know, it really was out in the country. I mean, it was the small right. town that had this dream of itself and this vision of itself probably near the city, but being the right. city. And so that idea course, is just interesting. Yeah, Angel House, your earlier book, is yeah. very much about this, I think. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah, about Northampton. And uh, um, yeah, it's, it's about filming or videos anyway as well. Uh -huh. yeah. 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 And the sense that your dream of being like an urban artist, you know, of sort yeah. of making it in the world, is itself a small town dream because it's formed from being in the small town in a way yeah, that people yeah. who grow up yeah. in cities maybe don't have that you know they, they still have ambition but the way they think about going to the city to make it is yeah. very different well it's yeah it's not a question of, of leaving and arriving someplace in the same way I absolutely yeah. um yeah well so so I, I was teasing a little about rob but it's also um you know blue branson is this kind of like he's a director but he also seems almost like an author mm -hmm. position um, he's like this this place that can be occupied potentially by other people. You know, as the as the book goes on, you get a sense that um, it's not completely clear that um, there's one Blue Branson, or even that there is a Blue Branson. Or mm -hmm. yeah, at the same time, there's this huge body of work that's all kind of associated with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, I'm interested in the idea of. You know, I mean, the, the sort of elegy for, you know, like we said before, of like the decline of cinema as this sacred art form, you know, yeah. which is now totally exacerbated by, by theaters being closed. Yeah. But, but also the sense that a partly naive dream on my own part and on the part of the townspeople is that there could be like a singular figure who produces singular right. work. Right. You know, it's like, this is, you know, Fellini who made these films or, right. or you know, whatever great figure you love or, right. or something. Whereas now I think, like we were saying earlier on, there's this much deeper sense that we're in an extremely diffuse and, and shapeless media environment. Yeah, yeah. Which which I would say is true of not just film, but but uh, literature as well. I mean, it's like, a, I, I think it used to be, or at least we had the impression that, that a lot of the work that was important was being published on you know, only a couple of big presses. And now it's just, it's really just kind of spread out. It's like, I find myself reading stuff from presses all over the country, big and small, and just, you know, trying to make my way through it in some ways. Yeah, right, which I think has, there are really beautiful aspects to it. You know, there's a kind of fear of the loss of the canonical or, you know, the great, yeah. like in, in Dodge City, you know, they go to the temple, which only shows Branson films and they only show it there. And there's a yeah. ritual aspect to it that on the one hand they mourn when that becomes decentralized or like you were saying, when the fear arises that Branson isn't singular and maybe doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's something really optimistic about it of just a much greater 
plurality you know. of ideas and of people and of presses and of locations. And, right, right, and I think yeah. that's to be encouraged at, at this point. Yeah. Well, and it's like, I mean, I, I feel like in, in that sense, the book is a kind of response to just the, um, uh, the kind of cultural milieu or cultural myths, myths that we grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this idea that you can have the great director and, you know, and we still have that idea to some degree, but not, I don't think not as vehemently as we used to, mm-hmm. or the idea, you know, there's, there's five major French philosophers that are important figures mm-hmm. and, you know, now it seems to have dispersed or just looking for the next king of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, I mean, I, I, and I think that's one thing that's, that's quite interesting about the book, just the, the, the way in which it both acknowledges the way in which those myths are functioning and still functioning, but also is, is intent on compromising them. And yeah. Exploding. And, and, and seeing how they're almost self-contradictory, right? Because if you think of like, you know, those 80s right. fr- French philosophers, on the one hand, a lot of what they were saying is that things are diffuse and decentralized, but they themselves were the center of that. Right, right. Yeah. You know, which is kind of an interesting, an interesting trick yeah. to pull out. And, and that's something yeah. that, you know, I, I try to, you know, I mean, I think both of our work has, has a lot of darkness, but also a lot of humor, you know, and I yeah. try to have a kind of optimism that, you know, my, I think my characters are always looking for the real, you know, and they're right. pretty sure that it's been deconsecrated from any place where they would think to look for it. Yeah. Whether it's the video store or the, Right. Uh, you know, the Oracle or any of these, you know, the great director, like those things have kind of fallen, but there's something tenacious about the real, that it often does crop up in unexpected places. Yeah. And yeah. unpredictably, it's not like you can know where to look for it, but, yeah. but it's like some certain moments, there is a breakthrough of something that does still seem true. Yeah. Right. And I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I do think that, that it's true with your work that um, it's not pessimistic. Um, it's not exactly optimistic either, but it's, I mean, tenacious is a good, good word for it. I mean, it's, it's kind of, there's a kind of doggedness in terms of, of keeping on going or being willing to not to give up. And, and there is kind of this notion that, you know, there's, there's still some potential there, the obsession that they have with the mountains surrounding Dodge City, for instance, or, you know, the, the idea that you can arrive kind of and be sort of a Blue Branson-esque figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all those things are, you know, and that's, the, I mean, I think that's a lot about the way in which, you know, we, we, we live in this very strange, fractured um, associ- collection of myths. Um, mm-hmm. And we both acknowledge their weaknesses and, and uh, um, you know, still have a hard time not living by them. Yeah, because maybe it's that they're weak or they've become weak over time in the forms that they're in, but they still contain some energy so that when they start to break down and like, you know, get rewritten or meld together, or, yeah. you know, have these apocryphal versions and, you know, like copies of copies of copies, something remains because there was right. something there, but they're like broken vessels. Right. right. And which is something Robert Coover in his work kind of deals with a lot. The idea that you can, you have, you can take a myth and you can kind of by, by breaking it in some ways, revitalize it or show what's left in terms of the life of the myth. Yeah. And I have a good friend who does, who researches like indigenous myths and does a lot of work with, you know, oral storytelling and dreams and those kind of ideas. And he really says, you know, that it's a mistake to think of myths as a body of stories, like, you know, the collected myths of, you know, X, Y, or Z culture, but rather that it's an orientation toward reality. It's just a way of seeing the world is within myth. Yeah. You know, and, and that these things are constantly self-reinventing and constantly volatile, like, you know, some, some physical matter that you were working with that doesn't have a definite form. Yeah. 
but it is, it's something of a balancing act to, to both kind of acknowledge the myths and break them at the same time mm -hmm. and ironize them and also still believe there's something there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and which, yeah. which maybe is just a, a pretty good definition of what it's like to live in the early 21st century. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's like, you can't, the things that it's like the equipment we were given from the 20th century, let's say to live with is inadequate. Yeah. But it's also manifestly impossible to live with no equipment. <laughs> so right. we constantly have broken equipment that we're, right, right. That we're tinkering yeah. with. <laughs> no, know. we got screwed by the 20th, yeah. 20th century, but that's okay. I mean, we'll, we'll do our best. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an ambiguous state that we kind of survived it, but also yeah. we survived into a place with no real blueprint. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's true. Um, so, so the other thing I want to mention is that um, a certain amount of um, transgressiveness um, at least sections of this book. Yeah. Um, and I, I want you to just, w w do you have any thoughts just on transgression or on, on transgressive literature? I know that you sometimes teach deliberately transgressive work. And mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, part of it, I, I think, is, is just what we were saying before, of like looking for these points of energy. You know, so it's like being could be language, could be, you know, imagined geography, like of the interior of the country. It could be these old ideas of, you know, here's how a Western works, or here's how, uh, you know, going to the city or going to the town, or here's like, you know, what the integrity of bodies is and is not. And then if you start to work against the grain of that, you, you just find like little things that are still alive, right? It's like, you're, it's like yeah. a scavenging act of like trying to like poke at, you know, taboos or poke at, uh, established ways of looking at reality and see if by kind of transgressing them or like distressing them or, you know, doing something a little bit that those ideas themselves don't want you to do. Can you like excise something still alive from them? Yeah. yeah. Whether that's humor, whether that's horror, whether that's just a moment of interest, mm -hmm. you know, whether that, you know, cause I, cause I think at the end of the day, it's like you want, mostly you want the world to feel lively. More, yeah. than, more than it needs to be about something. It needs to feel like it's come to life. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and I think it has to, that that's the case not only for readers, but for you as a writer mm -hmm. as well, that the people who are doing transgressive literature that doesn't work for me, it's very clear to me that they don't find it challenging. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, so they're, yeah. Yeah, because it's an interesting question. It's like, can you find your inner, uh, like the part of yourself that is still able to be shocked? Yeah. You know, or the spit, you know, or let you reclaim that childlike glee of like, I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do, you know, yeah, yeah, the yeah. excitement you'd have it as a kid, like, you know, learning a new word you're not supposed to say or something yeah, like yeah. that, you know, really gets at the sense that, yeah. you know, th there is energy, you know, the things can be activated. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You know, yeah. it's like the, the wasteland or something that we just don't want, like endless dead signifiers, like we can't do anything with that. Right, for sure. Um, so, so the other thing, um, we, we talked about film in relation to this, we've just talked about transgression, which kind of leads me to think about um, transgressive filmmakers mm -hmm. and, and um, you know, two of the, the kind of patron saints of this book, I guess, if you want to call them that, to go back into the mythology, mm -hmm. um, would be uh, uh, David Cronenberg and David Lynch, so the two Davids, there's probably yeah. others as well, and, and I'd be curious to hear about that, but, but what is... You know, how does body horror kind of fit into this myth or? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Cronenberg is, I think in the book they say, you know, DC, David Cronenberg is also Dodge City, right? That the, the, the two right. DCs line up. Right. Um, you know, I'm just interested in that idea of 
permeability, you know, in, in the sense, I mean, I think this relates to what we were saying before of like the writer needing to feel activated by the work. Mm -hmm. You know, someone like Cronenberg is, is really a master of showing how the body is permeable to all kinds of forces that it would like to think that it's not. Right. Whether, whether it's infection, you know, amputation, something more mm -hmm. uh, like cere cerebral or, or psychedelic, like, you know, yeah. I, I did this research project about um, Daniel Paul Schreber, yeah. this German judge who became obsessed with the idea of like cosmic rays. That, that Freud wrote about quite a bit. That yeah. Freud wrote about, yeah. Um, you know, they were altering his nervous system and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, and, and that's maybe a 20th century idea too, or late 19th century of you know, invention of x-rays and the idea that just our bodies are far less sealed off from the world than we imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and then I can also kind of translate that just into the geography of the place too, the notion that places are not sealed off from one another mm -hmm. as well. So, Yeah, I think you, you have a great line in, I think, the open curtain where you said, uh, nothing comes unmixed. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but, but that idea that, you know, and maybe that's a lot of like the dangerous side of, of religion or of dogma comes from is trying to insist that things are pure, right? I mean, obviously we'll yeah. see where that goes. But, but I think yeah. the solution to that, at least from my own point of view, is not to say that there is no spirituality or that there is no mystic mm -hmm. potential, but to really adopt the, the idea of, of heterodoxy and right. just being mixed together and things never being quite what they seem and things never even being themselves, if yeah. you look into them. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I mean, that's a lot of my work, obviously, is moving in that mm -hmm. direction. But yeah. yeah. And yeah. then, yeah, it's a kind of mistake to say because the logic of purity is manifestly insane, you know, that there's yeah. no power in those ideas to say, actually, they just have to really be boiled down and mixed with all kinds of other right. sources and left open to constant surprise. I mean, I think that's like the, yeah. you know, it's hard to say anything is beautiful in Cronenberg, but there's the sense that actually a lot of his characters want to be infected, right, <laughs> you know, right. want, to be, yeah. want to be invaded or, you know, in Videodrome, he wants the, right. the TVs and the videos to go into himself. No, for sure. You know, and that's where life comes from in a, in a very real sense, you know, that, yeah. that there is some constant mixing and matching of what's outside the world and what's inside our bodies. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, there's this constant notion of revision and, and adaptation, I suppose, in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it's more than that. I mean, it's also, I mean, yeah, there, there is this um, sense in Cronenberg that you, you um, I think it's, it is this notion of, of, of the membrane and, you know, being enclosed and the way in which that's, you know, you're, you're already, already not enclosed, you know, that, that, that both things are coming into you, but also there's already something there. Yeah, and, and that is sort of enlightenment or like an, being aware of reality as it is mm -hmm. in Cronenberg is not only being aware that you can't prevent the membrane from, from being right. penetrated, but that it's already happened. Right, exactly. It's always already happened. There's never a time when it hasn't happened. Exactly, yeah. In fact, that's so, all that's happening. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, it's so interesting too, that gets mixed up with computers and machines and, and mm -hmm. simulated realities and how that develops over the course of his, his work as, as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, um, you know, I think it's related to writing too, that it's like you want to be, you want to be open to things that are unexpected, which maybe actually is the deepest form of transgression, mm -hmm. is not just to write about, you know, some taboo sexual situation or something like that, but to actually transgress your own notion of what you thought you were working on mm -hmm. you know to yeah. really have some idea take over that you know in a previous century people might have called possession right yeah yeah no i, I think that's true and, yeah. and to welcome that i mean to me right. it, <laughs> maybe yeah. this is a slurry lie but but i would say uh, 
definition of sanity is not to never be possessed, but to be like safely possessed, to be open to ideas that you know you yeah. can sort of give take and have a release valve with, which for us is writing. Right. Well, so and with that, I mean, when you were working on a room um, uh, in Dodge City, um, both the, the, this one and the previous one, um, did you have a pretty clear sense of where we're going to go, or did you kind of come across a lot of surprises? Definitely a lot of surprises. Um, for the first one, the first one I actually started in Germany, where I lived before, like after college right. and, and before grad school. Um, and I was when I was working on Angel House, which that felt like a much more monolithic, you know, there was a kind of sense of like, yeah, you know, Sisyphean quality to it. And then I Dodge City, I did almost as a, you know, as a kind of side project or as an antidote, yeah. you know, with this sort of Calvino idea of lightness, of trying to do something that was more fleet-footed and more occasional and more, you know, could be done more quickly, specifically with less planning. Yeah. So I really did the first one. I don't think I thought of it as a trilogy, although when I put it together into a book, I knew there was more material, both yeah. literally in the sense of there being other chapters that I'd written and in a more psychic sense that I could feel that there was this larger yeah. world of it. So then it was really when I started writing the second one that I started picturing the third and saying, okay, now I can see how, right. you know, these three books are themselves sort of the beginning, middle and end of a story. Right. Even though I'm sure there'll be more surprises along the way as well. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Good. yeah. And just like the notion of the like American project and the American story got rapidly stranger during the course of working on it. So I think that yeah. there's no way not to filter that into it also. Right. No, that, 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 that makes sense for sure. And that's one thing that's interesting. I think that a lot of work that's fantastical or surreal, which I think this definitely is, um, uh, does have a relationship to the real that is sometimes not acknowledged fully. Mm -hmm. and it has to be there. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like a means of accessing the real. Right. It, you know, it's almost like of sneaking up on it, of accessing the real in a way that the real itself didn't think you were going to do. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like the opposite might also be true that if you write in an explicitly realist manner, uh, you know, I mean, great, great works can be done, but there's a danger of like you're approaching the real head on mm -hmm. and, and it wants to evade you. So you can end up missing. Right. right. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think that's true. And I do think it's a question too. I mean, the thing what we were talking about earlier of, are you depicting the real or are you creating an image of the real that stands in for it? Yeah. And, and for me, that's realism is, is, you know, um, a little too unaware sometimes that it's uh, uh, creating an image of the real. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that it is a style and a set of right. conventions the same way anything else. As anything else surrealism is. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. And that's maybe the naivete of the, of the narrator a little bit in, in volume two. Yeah, that he thinks you know if he could become Blue Branson, he'll be a kind of master of reality. You know that they right. will no longer evade him, yeah, or no, no longer persecute him. You know that he'll never, he won't be uh, on thin ice in Dodge City in the way that he right. otherwise is. Right. And well, and you, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, it's the this volume's a, a Kunstler roman, so it's a kind of novel about the artist's development, and so it, it does make sense that he has these kind of naivetes that he's working mm -hmm. through. And, um, you know, discovering where he's going to go exactly. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's entirely wrong in the sense that, you know, like we were saying before, you have this dream that, you know, you'll make it if you can get, you know, usually by comparing yourself to someone else, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that seems like it's, it's certainly not the case. Mm -hmm. But there is a sense that like, if you do develop a method of, you know, writing or, or creating artwork that works for you and maybe that works for some other people, you do have a sense that you can 
you can take a more active role in your own perceptions. You know, that, right. that, like, that like dreams and ideas and experiences aren't just hitting you head on right. and, and you're just absorbing the impact. There's more right. uh, take and that you can actually output something from that right. that, that does go here, you know, that is something. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree. I think that's true. Yeah. And that is, you know, makes you feel pretty, makes you feel more able to just live in the world, especially in a really strange time. In these strange times, for sure. Um, well, I think we, we may be coming pretty close to the end of, of our time. Um, can I ask you, I mean, what, what have you read lately or watched lately that you found interesting? Are there other things that you can recommend Absolutely. people? Um, Think. So I, I'm back in Kansas now, and I actually read uh, In Cold Blood for the first time. For some reason, oh. I, I just never, you know, it's one of those things that, like, you hear about so much that you almost think you've read it, but right. But I had, um, so I read that recently, and we went way out to, not the exact town where the, where the murders happened, but, like, that part of Western mm -hmm. Kansas, um, which was pretty, pretty resonant to, to really yeah, be in that world. for sure. So that, that was really interesting. Yeah. And I like, you know, speaking of, like, the spirit of place, I kind of like to read classic works about places that I'm in. Yeah. Something about that. Do, you, do you know there's another Capote book, which is called Hand Carved Coffins, or it's a, a novella called that, and it's a similar kind of crime story, but but much tighter novella length. And wow, it, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of where it, it may be. I, I, I'll have to figure out where it is exactly, but it's in one of his books. Interesting. Um, and it's, it's uh, if you've read... Um, uh, in cold blood, I think it's a really um, nice thing to kind of read next to that. Cool, I definitely will. Yeah. And other than that, you know, speaking of transgressive work, do you know um, Ariana Harwitz, who wrote Die My Love, and she has this new book called Feeble Minded. I, I know of her, but I haven't. I haven't. Those are really fascinating. Those really kind of made, yeah. made an impression. They're really intense. I think yeah. she's Argentine, but lives in France. I think oh, they're written cool. in Spanish, but, but okay. they're, they're very French. I'll, I'll check it out. Those are really the Capote yeah. book is Music for Chameleons is, is oh, music for, okay. where Aaron Carve Coffins is, yeah. Great. Um, yeah. yeah how, how, about, how about you in terms of? Well, terms of uh, I'm trying to think of what's really stood out lately. Um, and there, you know, um, I, a lot um, this year and um, partly because, you know, you're, you're isolated and what else are you going to do? Yeah. Um, when you were talking about Schreber before, I was just thinking there's a, a new book by um, D. Harlan Wilson, mm -hmm. which is about Schreber, mm -hmm. a novel kind of related to him, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, I uh, uh, just read uh, Robert Aikman's um, Go Back at Once, which is his kind of posthumous novel, mm -hmm. um, which is a weird book. It's kind of a, it, it, it almost feels like what would happen if um, um, John Galsworthy was writing like, slightly um, um, uh, uh, supernatural mm -hmm. fiction. <laughs> um, so it's very clever. It's very funny sometimes. Or, you know, someone like like Anthony Powell, someone mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. but if they're like less realistic stuff, uh -huh. I really like that. Cool. Oh, you know, one of the book, books I, I loved this year is, uh, um, or last year was Laird Hunt's um, In the House in the Dark of the World. Oh, uh, yeah, I read that. That, that book's yeah. really cool. Yeah, yeah, I just taught that and I'd read oh, nice. it before. Is it really teaches well so yeah yeah he's really interesting I, I like his work a lot yeah what about what about movies or i mean i know it's hard to see movies now except kind of on a smaller screen yeah i think you know what's or really TV. yeah the thing that's made the biggest impression on me lately is um bruno dumont oh yeah the french director who i just i'd seen a couple of his things earlier but i've gone on a more 
sequential tour through his works. I watched La Vie de yeah. Jesus, Humanité. Yeah. Um, Humanité was the first one I saw of his, um, which I think is just incredibly good and incredibly devastating. Yeah, yeah. He, he's like a new kind of patron saint. I feel like there's certain people who I really want, like when I encounter their work, I want to like enlist them in my own imaginary yeah. pantheon, you know, just have them with me. And he's someone who, that you know, especially because the way the films relate to towns and have these kind of, yeah. you know, co almost cosmic events, but in these, yeah. in these like really remote backwaters, I, I just thought. Have you watched his Joan of Arc uh, stuff? No, I haven't yet. Okay. Oh, oh, well, <laughs> it's really, really, I'll be curious to see what you think because I, uh -huh. uh, I think they're great, but they're also like, they're so different from some of the other stuff. Uh -huh. He really lightened up. He became a sort of like, like yeah. slapstick artist, which is yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> if, if that's where your journey could take you, that, that's a pretty good sign. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's not so bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to think if I know anyone yeah, who's, who's yeah. taken the journey the other direction, but no. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great line in a um, Bill Callahan song where he says, "I used to be, I used to be darker. Then I got lighter. Then I got dark again." <laughs> yeah, that's good. More, that's awesome. more or less gets at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Um, we may be just about there. Mm -hmm. Perfect. This is great. I'm jumping yeah, back you. in. Um, you yeah. guys, I love, I love so much ending with a whole slew of recommendations. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, and I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I think our listeners will too. I just wanted to see before we go, if there's anything else you want to mention, if you know, you've got an event coming up, you want to plug or other books people could look for of yours, anything else on your mind? What do you think, David? Yeah, I, I have a couple. So I have, um, so Dodge City 2 is coming out on the 26th of this month. So we can change about two weeks. Um, then the story collection, which is 10 years worth of stories. I and mean, it's really all the stories more or less so far, except, except really early ones, is coming out in June uh, from 11.11 Press. So I'm very excited about that. And then next year, I have a novel about Joseph Cornell called The New House that's gonna come out with Whiskey Tit early in the year, like in March or so. And then Dodge City 3, which I'm still working on, hopefully will come out at the end of 2022. So, so you're busy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff that's sort of been moving through the pipeline, right? But, but it's exciting to kind of see it all surface now, although it won't be, won't be the best time to, to travel with it, but we'll yeah. see what, what happens later in the year. Yeah. And then I, I have uh, a new collection that's coming out in August, uh, which is called The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell. And uh, the best yeah. title. I'm, I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. If, if so you're not exciting. laughing already, what, what's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it, does it continue the, the kind of science fictional trajectory? Uh, so it, it, has, it has some um, science fictional stories. It has some, um, you know, it's basically SF horror when it's science fictional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then it also has a lot of ecological stories, which mm -hmm. are kind of near future, um, also horror, you know, because that's how like, ecology works these days. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, just a variety of stuff, but I think there's definitely more kind of inclination towards um, ecological and, and uh, kind of post-human post, uh, stuff. Yeah. And we, we may be approaching the cusp. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm looking forward to that. Cool. That'll be... Uh, that'll be something to look forward to for the summer. Fantastic. All right, yeah. guys. Well, thank you again so much for this conversation. Thank you for taking the time and sharing your work. Um, I hope we get to do this in person sometime. <laughs> uh, but let's right. figure out for 2022. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. 
Yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't going to be 2021, but 2022. Mm -hmm. Here, here yeah. we come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. Right. All right, yeah, guys. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Um, Sounds good. David Leo Rice and Brian Evanson were my guests today. The book they discussed was A Room in Dodge City, Volume 2. You can get it from Skylight Books. Head on over to our website, skylightbooks.com. You can get all of David's books and all of Brian's books, and perhaps we'll even have some signed copies of Brian's books very yeah, soon. Very soon, yep. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, everybody. Take care out there, and thank you so much for listening. We will catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.